1: Welcome to the Italian Studies channel of the New Books Network. This is your host, Giancarlo Lombardi. Our guest today is Frank Burke. Frank Burke is Professor Emeritus at Queen's University in Canada. Two of his books on Federico Fellini appeared in 2020 in conjunction with the Fellini Centennial. Wiley Blackwell's A Companion to Federico Fellini, edited with the late Marguerite Waller, and with Marita Gubareva, and his own Fellini's films and commercials, from post-war to post-modern, Intellect, a revised version of his 1996 book on the director. He has provided the audio commentary, along with the late Peter Brunet for the Criterion Collection release of Fellini's Amarcord, as well as a solo commentary for Criterion's Roma and for Il Bidone. All three are part of Criterion's essential Fellini box, really, box set released this November. In terms of non-Fellini publications, Professor Burke edited Wiley Blackwell's *A Companion to Italian Cinema* in 2017, and has written on the Italian *peplum*: Dario Argento, Michelangelo Antonioni, Lina Wertmüller, Mario Camerini, Roberto Rossellini, William Friedkin, Sam Peckinpah. Michael Cimino, Horror Cinema, Experimental Cinema, and Canadian Cinema. Along with Amy Howe-Duckdale and Marita Gubareva, Burke is preparing a special issue of the Journal of Italian Cinema Media Studies on Tonino Guerra, for whom 2020 was also a centenary year. He has also edited a section on Fellini for a 2020-2021 issue of Italica. His His current interests... Embrace the writings of Alfred North Whitehead, Isabel Stengers, Stephen Shaviro, Rosie Braidotti, Gilles Deleuze, and Felice Gallery in the context of reimagining interrelatedness, particularly in a moment of envirom- envirom- environmental crisis. Uh, today, we will be speaking about the two books that just appeared on Fellini. So, welcome, Frank.
0: Thank you very much, Giancarlo. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Frank, you've been working on Fellini for many years now. What drove you to produce a new edition of your important monograph? And how has your thinking changed over the years on Fellini's film production? Do you believe that the theoretical frameworks through which you understood and interpreted Fellini back then still remains viable? And how are you reframing now what you once wrote about him?
0: Well, the reason for um, the new edition, and shortly after my 1996 version of Fellini's films appeared, there was a a significant change in publishers. The the series in which it appeared changed hands, and and then it was cancelled. And as a result, the book had a pretty short shelf life. And I would come across studies of Fellini in the English-speaking world that's seemed to reflect on awareness that the book existed, so I had long nourished the hope that the book would again see the light of day in a more lasting way. With the Fellini centenary on the horizon, I approached Flavia Laviozza, who was just launching the trajectories of Italian cinema and media series with intellect. She proposed an updated version to the press they accepted, and uh, my hope was realized. Uh, the updating consists of a new chapter on Fellini's commercials, which had not been available when I wrote the 1996 book, and some other additions related to gender and race that I think we'll probably discuss later on in the, in the podcast. I, I, do, I do think the original framework still still holds. I was arguing that at the beginning, Fellini's filmmaking was initially powered by a commitment to individual freedom as he was reacting to the repressive years of fascism and dogmatic Catholicism and that this commitment was fueled to some extent by American ideological models, and it gained momentum from the director's encounter with the work of Carl Jung and his theories of individuation. However, I argue that with time, optimism and the possibilities of individual self-realization did not hold, and the strictly Jungian period proved to be relatively brief for Fellini, encompassing pretty much the greater part of the 1960s. And then Fellini began to turn his attention away from the individual and towards self-reflexive experimentation with film language. Then in the 1970s and 80s, responding to political events and increasing domination of television, he adopted a more postmodern view of experience, deconstructing the individual or subject and emphasizing postmodern themes of, of reproduction and simulation over originality. I do think this structure... Does still hold. I think it still applies, and I do still uh, and I do see people in the past twenty five years um, writing in similar ways about the evolution of Fellini's career. In terms of how I would reframe it now, I think that that uh, issue will, will probably get addressed as we talk about the companion to uh, to, to Federico Fellini and some of the other issues that um, that are on uh, on the dock for on the docket for uh, for the podcast.
1: Great. Uh well, let me tell you right away Frank that as someone who taught Fellini, who has been teaching Fellini for the last 15 years, your 96 version of Fellini's films has not uh be, been, you know, of the, you know, has not disappeared. Uh it's oh, been incredibly useful. My students have read it many, um, many times.
0: Oh, uh, so that's, it's that's great to hear. <laughs>
1: um so, uh individualism and authoritarianism are keywords that resonate strongly throughout your work on Fellini. How have those two concepts shifted throughout Fellini's film production? Individuation is a term that returns through the many chapters of your book, and psychoanalysis looms large in much of Fellini's work and your interpretation of it. What is the extent of their centrality, and how are such concepts still driving your interpretation of Fellini's work in 2021?
0: Well, I think authoritarianism, in a broad sense, was something that consumed Fellini throughout his career. The domination of church, state, and bourgeois morality are, are everywhere in his film through Toby Dammit. And Fellini's comes was an attempt to break with that, at least stylistically, though the political power of various Caesars lurk in the background throughout the film. Then in, in movies such as The Clowns in Roma, in which he plays himself as a filmmaker, he seeks to unsettle the notion of himself as author. And authority. So it's a critique, self critique of authoritarianism. With Amarcord, no, pardon me, go ahead. No,
1: no, no, I said yes, I just nodded.
0: <laughs> <laughs> With Amicord, no, Casanova di Federico Fellini focuses on the psychology of fascism and its production of complicity and conformity. So authoritarianism is still there. And then, of course, Provador d'Orchestra. As yet another example is the, the highly orchestrated individualism, the fragmentary individualism of the musicians, leads to chaos, disempowerment, and finally total dependency on the authority of the Germanic conductor at film's end. Then something quite similar happens with the attack of the, the Austro-Hungarian warship at the end of Elena Ewa, this resurgence of authority. There's also a strong emphasis in that film on the dominance of media, centered on the journalist. Narrator who is a protagonist of the film. And this then turns into Fellini's critique of teledipendenza and Ginger and Fred, the usurpation of cinema by TV and Intervista, and television's omnipresence by the end of La Voce della Luna. So television becomes the new fascism when Fellini shifts his locus from the past to the present. So the issue of authoritarianism never really leaves the scene. In, in terms of psychoanalysis, uh, I'm now a bit amused by a concern I had as as Marguerite Waller, Marita Gubareva and I were organizing the Companion to, to Federico Fellini. I, I had felt that considerations of Jung and Fellini's work had fallen by the wayside over the years and, and was pleased to feel that we'd righted the balance with a couple of strong interventions in the volume. However, now with growing attention to Fellini's a Libro dei Soni, I'm witnessing what I, I think might be an overemphasis on the Swiss psychoanalyst. As I mentioned before, I think the strongest Jungian influence on Fellini occurred in the 1960s. He, he met the Jungian psychoanalyst Ernst Bernhardt in 1960, and though this was momentous and long-lasting for, for Fellini, uh, Bernhardt died in 1965. The only films that I would describe as strongly Jungian, though of course they're always more Fellini-esque than Jungian, or Le Tentazioni del Dottor Antonio, Eight and a Half, Giulietta deli Spiriti, and with a good deal of qualification, even Toby Damon. A strong Jungian emphasis on individuation is really only present in Eight and a Half and Giulietta deli Spiriti. I feel that actually Fellini's psychoanalytic bent becomes much closer to that of James Hillman, the American uh, Jungian psychoanalyst, as we move into the 1970s. Though Fellini and Hillman never met, they expressed strong mutual admiration for each other, and Fellini had several of of Hillman's volumes in his library. Though consistently respectful of of Jung, Hillman rejected the sort of teleological thrust of Jungian individuation. His his was a much less optimistic view of psychic and dream experience, which put him in tune with Fellini's work in films such as Amricord and Casanova. Of course, I mean, I mean, it is true that we can we can find all sorts of Jungian content in Fellini's post-60s films and throughout his dream diaries, as well as important dreams of Bernhard and the latter. But an underlying Jungian psychology doesn't seem to me to be as dominant as several recent essays have tended to suggest. There have been uh, several conferences around the Book of Dreams, particularly in Rimini, and that's where I, I tend to see this return to Jung, whereas I think that there are probably other other ways of dealing psychoanalytically with, with the, 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 the book of dreams. Fellini Satyricon an interesting film in relation to Hillman. Hillman called it his favorite Fellini movie because of its emphasis on myth. And certainly this emphasis was in line with much of, of Jung's work. However, with respect to individuation, Fellini said that the film is lacking in both characters and psychology. To, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but but I do feel the characters are absorbed by their mythic landscape more than um, standing out within it. So as an addition to what you just said, uh, how would
1: you feel about the question of, of psychoanalysis and City of Women? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that, you know, it's, how do you read the presence of psychoanalysis in City of Women?
0: Well, for one thing, I think it's playful. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's. Yeah, I think one of the things that that happened as Fellini moved beyond sort of a strict Jungian approach to things is that he began, as he did also with his relationship to the paranormal, that whenever he presented something, he would present it in a way in which he was also in some way satirizing. And he was always distancing himself through parody and caricature. So I think that City of Women is readable in some ways as a, a, as a dream critique and a critique really of, of, of a masculine unconscious. And I think it's really, it's, very, it's really interesting in that respect. But on the other hand, it's also, as I say, quite playful. And I think the main thing here too is that it's not as though Snapperaz through dreaming his way through the film reaches any kind of state of enlightenment, which we might see happening in Eight and a Half and certainly happens in Juliet of the Spirit. He just goes back to sleep to dream some more, which is very much a kind of Hillman response of staying with the dream uh, instead of assuming there's going to be some, even though there's one presented uh, ironically in the film, a light at the end of the tunnel. Okay.
1: In Fellini's film production, you identify what you define as a move away from realism. How do you think that plays out in the specific context of Fellini's so-called postmodernity? And how has that inflected the reception of Fellini's cinema, both in academic circles and in terms of general spectatorship?
0: Well, of course, Fellini's move away from realism uh, from realism earned him the ire of Italian left-wing critics who, who viewed New Year Realism as a political and cinematic panacea in post-war Italy. Yet it was his monumental works, such as La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, which were you know, focused on cinematic, on experimentation with cinematic narration, that that made him one of the major figures in 20th century cinema, and an inspiration for countless f- filmmakers. So his reputation is, to a large extent, the result of his movement away from realism. His Eight and a Half really was the Citizen Kane of his generation, the film that launched a thousand filmmakers. Here I exaggerate too. Well, uh, in in terms of postmodernity yeah. <laughs> I mean, in terms of his post-modernity and what I would also call post-structuralism, I think academic film critics in the English-speaking world have largely missed the boat. Uh, as I point out in, in my Fellini's films and commercials, uh, while Fellini's continued to be important in Italian film and cultural studies, he, he's been dismissed by and large by Anglo film scholars. they deemed too politically incorrect for even a little bit of attention beyond ridicule. He's mentioned only to be put down generally. My, my book was an attempt to demonstrate that applying, my, the 1996 book, was an attempt to demonstrate that applying the same theoretical framework that Anglo scholars used to dismiss Fellini, but doing so with, with really close attention to Fellini's signifying strategies, one could see that Fellini was actually working out quite brilliantly the very things that film scholars were validating in other directors. To me, this was extraordinarily ironic. Uh, my attempts to bridge the gap between Italianists and film scholars fell on deaf ears, and, and not only because of, of the book's limited shelf life. But now I, I, I really have to express some regret that I tried to make Fellini politically correct in some ways. I, think it just, <laughs> I mean, I think it distracted me from what appealed to me most in the director, which is his prov- provocative way of, of new ways of seeing and, and responding to the world and the inspirational aspect of his work. Yeah. And fortunately, I think the companion to, to Federico Fellini avoids any attempt to defensively justify the, the director and is a, a corrective in many, many ways to my own work. Well, I think it's, it does a great job. Um, much has been written, you were talking about political
1: correctness. Uh, much has been written about Fellini's, Fellini being apolitical since the beginning of his career. Yet I know that you, like other Fellini scholars such as Andrea Minutz, for example, believe otherwise. What is your take on the political charge of Fellini's cinema?
0: Well, I think I think what I was saying about authoritarianism is probably a useful lead-in um, to my my approach to this subject. The political, for me, in terms of critique, whether by artists or, or cultural commentators, intellectuals, uh, for for me, it means the representation or analysis of relations of power, and I'll, I'll I'll come back to this in a minute. I think. And when we're talking of art, that is, you know, the kinds of works that are created through intuition and imagination. It, it doesn't mean the imposition of theoretical constructs of, of some sort of rigid Marxism, let's say, on human and social relations. Um, that's an intellectual or academic art for which Fellini, uh, which for Fellini would have been a, a contradiction in terms. But what it does mean for me, in other words, intuitive uh, political critique, is, is the sensed recognition and the symbolic expression of power imbalances, dominations, resistances, complicities, and so on, not only on a large scale, but also in the most minute and nuanced of instances, which is what I find so appealing about so many of Fellini's films. When at the beginning of B. Vitalone, for instance, Fellini depicts people running for cover when rain and thunder threaten, he presents us with a thoroughly normal response, but he's also introducing us to a community that will protect itself within the comforting but repressive shelters, of bourgeois form, bourgeois formality. And then when the TV antenna bearing Indians attacked the film crew at the end of Intervista, we're certainly shown the, the power relations between television and cinema. But there's also the context of a history of colonization and power discrepancies. It pervades every aspect of society and film's hierarchized film crew in the movie, giving political meaning not only to the Indians, but Japanese, blacks, fascists, American-style marching bands, cannons, Roman ruins, elephants, imperious stars and directors, including Fellini, a threatened terrorist attack that breeds an equal and opposite police presence, and so on. Um, So even in this seemingly apolitical filmic romp, Fellini makes power relations a constant, though subtle, focal point of his film. And then much of Fellini's later work practices what I term a a politics of signification, unsettling meanings that are attached to power, and thus performing a kind of deterritorialization. It's not just the content or the imagery of Fellini's films that matters, but the way they create and, and contest a meaning. Now, you mentioned Andrea Minou's for me, and I think for most cultural study scholars in the English-speaking world, what he calls politics is perhaps better classified as sociology. Uh, his, his emphasis on Italian, Italian nation, it's more, more on Italian, Italian nation and, and not so specifically in relations of power. His discussion, let's say, of Amarcord might focus on how it portrays a certain kind of Italian, a certain kind of Italianness. Whereas for me, the politics of the film lie more in its demonstration in sequence after sequence of the ideological hold that fascism has on the community and on the community's both willing and forced descent to fascist power. Now, these two, these two approaches are not mutually exclusive by any means. Fellini's portrait of power relations is sociological as well as political. But my interest lies more in the micro practices of interpolation, self-seduction, and collusion, that make the film, for me, a really powerful political statement.
1: Uh, as, a, as a postface to what you just said, uh, do you think that the allegorical nature of uh, Prova d'Orchestra, of orchestra rehearsal, somehow affected its reception as a political film?
0: Well, yeah, I think it certainly created a divided response, and certainly not the first time that Polini's uh, films have done that. Uh, and I'm not, you know, it's interesting because Fellini, of course, we never can trust what he says in interviews, but, but Fellini tried to dismiss the idea that it was simply allegorical. And so it, clearly it refers, it refers to that moment, the moment of, of Aldo Moro yeah. and his kidnapping and murder. And it certainly is, is, is framed within that political context. But I think for Fellini, as always, it tended to be this uh, analysis of, of uh, mass psychology of what, and, and certainly what it, what he was looking at in terms of how Italy was changing in the 1970s, um, but the uh, the failed historical compromise and a whole lot of other things, which interestingly enough, people don't normally talk about Fellini being in tune with all of these things, but he actually is. Um I think he would see it not so much as a political allegory as, as a psychological analysis of the breakdown of a society. Uh, and of course the fears of, of neo-fascism in the 1970s. So yeah. so I, I tend to I always tend to see his work as being a bit more concrete than just merely allegorical, but certainly it's yes. easy, you know, so I just think that would be my response.
1: Uh, so uh, we've talked about, politics let's move to another big issue which is that of gender another criticism that has been leveled against Fellini has been that of his problematic representations of female characters and gender relations your book addresses this subject head on dedicating ample space to a new reading of city of women can you share with our listeners your position on this subject and your specific call for a rethinking of Fellini's gender politics
0: well, we're certainly into a contentious issue with lots of room for debate and disagreement. And I also, I also feel there are different venues, as it were, for Fellini's expression of the so-called feminine. There are interviews in which he sounds like quite a conservative male, gender-wise, um, making comments that drive me crazy, <laughs> uh, and there are his drawings, both within and beyond the Libro dei Soni. But and then there are the films. And I think it's in the last that Fellini works out most constructively a kind of gender politics, again, because I think he's working intuitively and comprehensively when he's making movies. And, and I'll stick with those for now. His early films are noteworthy for their critique of the abuse of women. *Agenzia Matrimoniale, La Strada, Il Bidone*, and Le Noti di Cabiri are all about the exploitation of women. And in La Dolce Vita, as Marguerite Waller pointed out in an essay on the film, there, there's not a single significant female character who is not abused. It's really quite extraordinary. Once you once you you move from character to character and see what yeah. the women experience in that film, now Fellini's sensitivity to this issue and his willingness to, to make women the focal point of La Strada, Lenotti di Cabiri, and Giulietta del Spirito were they were ex- personally were extremely in- influential for me as I was trying to negotiate changing gender roles and attitudes in the 1960s, amidst what was then called women's liberation. So Fellini's first, his greatest importance for me initially had a lot to do with his representation of women. Now when okay. women's liberation gave away to full-blown feminism, Fellini recognized the hubris of trying to represent a woman's perspective as he had in Giulietta delle Spiriti, And he consciously shifted his focus to, ma- to a critique of masculinity. Now, I don't think he gets enough credit for this or to his understanding of feminism, nor do I feel that his later representations of women are sufficiently recognized as foregrounded in men's fear and anxieties around them. Now, in my book, I seek to show how Fellini contextualizes child or young adult experiences of women. Um, His images are not just standalone provocations, which I think they're often treated as. For instance, in Roma, when the image of a half-naked woman interrupts a school slideshow, I think the point is that the, the, the young boy's first awakening to women occurs within his institutional setting, and it's actually the product of, of his Catholic environment. It's linked to the monuments of Rome, including the Lupa del Campidoglio and the slideshow. Thus, women immediately take on the qual- qualities of the monumental and the maternal. Moreover, the scene is presented as completely orchestrated subversion. This, to me, is the most interesting aspect of this scene. the scene. The camera focuses on the child before he has a rambunctious response to the slide, suggesting that the response is, in fact, expected, it's predictable, and hence it's, it's actually conformist. So any notion of sex as oppositional is produced by the repressive tolerance, to, to quote Marcuse, I think it's a really useful term in this context, the repressive tolerance of church and school, which, which correlates perfectly with the role of bordellos in Italian male sexual initiation. I, I do a similar reading of the so-called asophilia of snapperaz and La Città delle Donne, again suggesting the cultural construction of masculinity and female misrepresentation. And I also try to provide an extensive discussion of the gays in the film Uh, which is an interesting contestation, probably without any conscious intent, (laughs) of Laura Mulvey's famous essay. It's a really interesting transference of the gaze from the male character to the female. And though as they say Fellini's representation of woman is fertile ground for disagreement, there's a kind of of knee-jerk reaction led to some pretty astounding claims. Mm -hmm. In fielding prospective essays for The Companion, we editors encountered authors who tried to equate Fellini with Harvey Weinstein and Roman Polanski because of this sort of reputation he had. However, amidst the thousands and thousands of pages of interviews and writings by women who worked with Fellini or had intimate relationships with him, there has never been a single claim that he was sexually coercive or that he preyed upon the young. But there is this circulating attitude around Fellini which I think grossly misrepresents, um, misrepresents his relationship to women.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Can we touch also on your parallel discussion on racial
1: considerations in Fellini's cinema? Why do you believe that new light needs to be shed on his treatment of race in films? And and I believe that you're absolutely right there.
0: Mm. Well, and and this is this, along with with some um, enhanced enhanced view of gender, or some of the other additions to, to my new edition of the book. Um, and here, again, as in the representation of women, I think context is all important. Chalene Green has written a wonderful piece for the companion linking Fellini's work to Italian colonialism and addressing the issue of whiteness in Le Tentazioni del Dottor Antonio, the enormous representation of whiteness by Anita Eckberg in the film. *Lo Loceco Bianco is likewise an examination of whiteness and of the appropriation of the East by the West, and race also factors elsewhere in the film. There's an intriguing scene in which Ivan awakens to his hotel room flooded by the water from Vanda's feigned bath, and a black priest erupts into the room, speaking in a language that that Ivan Ivan cannot understand. And on the one hand, the priest can be dismissed as comic relief because he's hyperactive. On the other hand, he's everything that Ivan is not, a boundary-crossing, spontaneous and kindly figure. He speaks with great passion, and and though his language is non-Italian and remains unsubtitled, He's the most communicative relational figure in the film, other than the sex worker Kabiria. At first, he seems to be expressing his concern about the water, but as Ivan desperately asks, where's my wife? He puts his hand on Ivan's shoulder, as though understanding, despite the language barrier, Ivan's pain, and he seems intent on telling him something very important. That his otherness remains untranslatable tells us much about the cultural closure of Ivan's world. Uh, So contextualizing Fellini's others in terms of how they unsettle restrictive narratives and and, and characters can often lead, I think, to surprising conclusions as Fellini can turn stereotype into decolonization.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Let's move now to, uh, to the companion. I know that you have said elsewhere that the companion to Fellini was not meant principally for academics, but largely for cinephiles. In discussing how this comprehensive book was structured and conceived, can you address this question of target readership for our listeners?
0: Uh, I think uh, what occurs to me as you say this is I think that I, I'm always in opposition to the, the establishment. So I, I was against the film, film Anglo film theorists in writing my book in 1996, and I was against doing a purely academic book. Uh, with the companion, even though, even though the Wiley-Blackwell companions are meant to become sort of standard research texts in, in their field. But I, 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 and all, all three of us uh, editors were, were, did not want to just turn out an academic text for, for academics. So, so there's a broad range of materials in the volume, from personal a- anecdotes and information to archival leads to, to obviously scholarly investigations of Fellini's work. But I would say we, we truly conceived of the book as a companion. We, we, we asked ourselves more or less if we were stranded on a desert island with improbable access to a Fellini streaming channel, what, what would we want as a companion to his work? And we weren't thinking principally of academics, but the, the general curious reader as well. So the volume's meant to be jargon-free, even though it often deals with theoretically complex issues. And I, I would say that the intended audience beyond academics would be the Criterion Collection crowd, but also others with broad cultural interests.
1: It's funny that you're mentioning the question of the, the, the deserted island because when I was interviewed for my job, uh, the provost then, was a film scholar, asked me what uh, film I would bring with me on a deserted island, uh, and I answered eight uh, and a half.
0: So this oh, is, wow. bringing, this is bringing things together. I love it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, once all contributions were collected, what elements surprised you the most? Was there something that unexpectedly stood out in this collective rethinking of Fellini's oeuvre? And let's say here that, you know, I mean, there are essays coming from all venues and, and some of the contributors were very close to Fellini. So... It's an incredible yeah. Yeah. job
0: that you guys have done. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think the more the more I contemplate this, the more surprises I find did emerge as we were as we were putting the book together. First of all, the extraordinary willingness of so many people to write. I mean, it was just you know I, I came at at feeling well. There is this resistance to Fellini, but then I was thinking in terms of Anglo film scholarship instead of a broader cultural context and obviously an Italian context. So one of the one of the one of the great surprises was just how many people and and people who who did theory and cultural theory and so forth said, "Oh, I've always wanted to write about Fellini. This is fantastic. Now you're giving me an opportunity to do it." So so that was that was one one really wonderful surprise which made our task fairly easy in terms of having lots of people willing to contribute. Then there was a, a another Another thing that I was pleased with, and also this really speaks to, you know, a, a kind of lack in, in my own book, is there was a significant shift from semiological to a more phenomenological kind of analysis, uh, analysis. There were several essays that talked of the impact and intensity of Fellini's work, its immediacy, its haptic and synesthetic dimensions, and great discussion of, of music and sound in relationship to this. So a movement away from interpretation. Um, to a recognition of the power uh, of Fellini's imagery. Um, then another another nice surprise was the enormous impact, and you you sort of referred to this briefly, but the enormous personal impact that Fellini had on people, the community of love that surrounded his work and relationships. I I, I just was I just was so amazed at the amount of generosity I experienced as I was doing research for the book and. I'll mention just one person in particular, Vincenzo Molica, who's a very close yeah. friend of Fellini's, just a wonderful, wonderful human being who, to me, reflected what the spirit of what I love most in, in Fellini's work. And I think that this, uh, the impact of, of Fellini is reflected in the foreword and the preface and the opening sections of the book, as well as in testimonials that we place throughout the text. A fourth, I can't believe how many surprises there are in this book, a fourth element of surprise was uh, the extent of Fellini's global reach. Margie Margie was particularly adept at uncovering people from the far reaches of the globe who who could speak to (laughs) Fellini's importance in their cultures. We knew that he was well known beyond Italy in the English-speaking world, but we never expected our section on receptions, appropriations, and dispersions to be so encompassing. Beyond Europe and the U.S., we were able to get Commentaries on Fellini's influence in Canada, South Asia, Turkey, Algiers, Russia, Japan, Cuba, and we could have provided more if we'd had more space. And then the final, final surprise, in a sense, given the conflicted discourse around feminism and Fellini, we were gratified by the enormous contribution of women to the companion. Two of the three editors of women, of the editors are women, but in addition, 27 of the 51 main entries involve women writers there is criticism some specifically along gender lines and we certainly did not discourage dissent but the overwhelming majority of entries involving women are positive and among the most compelling testimonials for Fellini are those of Catherine Brella, Jane Campion Natalia Ginsburg and Lena Bertmuller of course yeah
1: i know that the adjective fellini-esque and the question of fellini's legacy are issues that loom large in your thinking on Fellini's work. Would you like to share with our listeners your positions on these subjects?
0: Well, of course, Fellini's legacy is for the most part out of our hands, Uh, aside from our trying to contribute to it with scholarship and pedagogy and podcasts such as this one. uh, I think that changes in ideological context and technologies and so forth uh, create unpredictable effects on legacies such as Fellini's. For instance, streaming would seem to be a plus in terms of increasing accessibility to to his work, but the volume of material available for streaming really shrinks the visibility of Fellini in relation to the whole. I, I would just hope, I think, that over time the experience of Fellini's films is not diminished beyond recuperation and and that present, this especially speaking to your question about the Fellini-esque, that, that present and future film viewers will still be able to describe certain of their more bizarre moments in life as, quote, like being in a Fellini movie, unquote. I Absolutely. mean, that was such a co- common expression when um, in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, but Fellini, I mean, Fellini does live on prominently in the minds of many. The March issue of Harper's featured a wonderful essay by Martin Scorsese, titled "Il Maestro: Federico Fellini and the Lost Magic of Cinema." And Laura Dern, presenting this year's Oscar for Best International Feature Film, talked of how the language of cinema in Lestrada transformed her. Very brief, but very moving speech.
1: And Fellini won so many of the early Oscars for the best foreign film. Yeah, he won the very first.
0: Yeah, film. yes, and that's that's what gave her the opportunity to um, to talk about her memory.
1: Let's actually use this moment to remember that uh, the pandemic has deprived us uh, of uh, the opportunity to really celebrate Fellini just as much as it did for Dante the following year. So in 2020 we had Fellini 2021 we had Dante, and so much did not happen because of that
0: I know I know I know I just everything got canceled I ended up doing one talk at the University of Kansas and then COVID shut down and I was supposed to go to Bologna and Taramina and Rome and uh, Luca and all sorts of different places so it's it's really really a shame just a shame. Not not that I didn't get. To, I mean, it's a shame that I didn't get to Italy, certainly. But it's much more of a shame that the opportunity to broadcast Fellini so was, have, was so finished.
1: I have one last question, Frank, and uh, and this is where it gets more personal. Um, the the companion was the final step in your long scholarly collaboration with our beloved friend Margaret Waller, who passed away last year. As a parting thought. Can you tell us more about what working with Margie meant for you and what is, in your opinion, her long-lasting contribution to the study of Fellini's work?
0: Yes, I'm happy, both happy and sad to do so. Uh, I knew Margie for 30 years. She was my longest-standing fellow traveler in my work on Fellini, both of us self-taught in terms of film and and Fellini studies. Margie's background was English and comp lit. Mine was English lit. Uh, And we both brought a theoretical approach to the director's work that was, for the most part, lacking at the time time that we met, partly because of the neglect on the part of Anglo film scholars, but partly because Italian film studies was just beginning to embrace post-structuralist theory of certain aspects of it. semiology, uh, I think, was already... uh, was already significant within Italian film studies, but that that wasn't a, a vehicle that worked particularly well with Fellini. My essay changing the subject, addressing Fellini's deconstruction of the the sovereign self and, and my Frederick Jameson inflected reality-slash-representation-slash-signification slash appeared at the very end of the 1980s, and, and Margie's wonderful theoretical readings of La Dolce Vita and Giulietta spiriti appeared in 1990. As a result of our synchronicity, we co-edited for Federico Fellini Contemporary Perspectives for the University of Toronto Press, working together through mo- most of the 1990s on, on the book, which then appeared in, in 2002. And then, of course, we reunited for the companion to Federico Fellini, keeping in touch, of course, in the meantime. M- Margie's work on Fellini has been described by extremely renowned readers as, as everything from brilliant to magisterial. And I was certainly lucky to have my work illuminated by the light of her intelligence. And she was not only brilliant, but astoundingly precise. And we both, as former English majors, had the same commitment to clear, coherent, and stylistically disciplined writing. And being old school in a variety of ways, we shared a strong distaste for nouns such as impact and transition being turned into verbs. And we nurtured each other's repugnance for various new trends and expressions. (laughs) We had a lot of fun. Dissing some of the newer newer ways that uh, things were being expressed. She was a joy to work with, and not just professionally. As countless people, and you know this so well, who have known her have testified, she was kind, generous, supportive, caring, and she was also witty and self-effacing. Uh, at the moment, I'm writing an essay on the Fellini symbolic, based to some extent on the work of Gilles Deleuze. And to exemplify, I'm actually going to cite in detail Margie's readings of Fellini, providing both a a homage and a a broad representation of her work. Uh, Her most recent writings on Fellini, the introduction and her piece on Fellini's undoing of gender binaries for the companion, will further enshrine her as one of the most original commentators on the director. She she was truly a del maestro. She not only saw clearly into Fellini's art, she saw through it to imaginative strategies crucial for negotiating difficult times, both his and ours.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about this work. Me too. Uh, it's, it's, it's been, been a real, real pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Well, and, thank you. Uh, it's it's you know, yeah. I, I hope our listeners will get a chance to to pick up your books because they're really important and they they mm. they're Integral to the study of Fellini. Once
0: again, thank you so much, Frank. Okay, well, thank you and take care.